On this episode of Effing Shakespeare, our guest is the one and only Jericho Brown. Poets, lovers, and anyone who desires to hear beautiful language spoken by a beautiful voice, this episode is for you. We talk about Brown's The Duplex, a poetic form he created for his new book, The Tradition, his passion for his work, and how he also doesn't drive a Bentley. I'm not going to ruin the surprise or anything, but Jericho sings. That's all I'm going to say. Just listen. Yeah. It's nothing. It's the easiest thing I've done all day to turn it down. Hold on, I got to get back to it. I think, uh, Jerrica, you should be able to turn us down on your end. Yeah, I'm I'm good. Okay. Are, are you good? Yeah, I'm so good. I'm the best. <laughs> I just like watching this wavy line go around. So I'm sorry, I just make sounds so I can watch the wavy line. For a second here. Yeah. I gotta come back because we have a reading tonight. Oh. And it's seven. It's food gonna be there, so. Bless the Lord. I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. Dr. Jericho Brown is a poet, teacher, American Book Award winner, Guggenheim Fellow, and once upon a time, a speechwriter to the mayor of New Orleans. Across three collections of poetry and some gajillion talks and essays, yes, we come to know who Brown is, for, as Brown himself says, isn't poetry the real autobiography since, at its best, It is a record of the life of the mind. But in coming to know his mind, we come to know more of this place, this world. He teaches us the reader for whom it feels he has certain love, even when we are being implicated, even while he asks us to feel his hurt to inhabit it. He teaches us about the nature of the natural world, the private life, and the way love moves in a body, in a man all while subverting traditional poetic forms and creating pure beauty in new ones. In real life, Brown's reading voice is halting and quiet and affecting. Tuned to a frequency that asks you to lean in, he has one of those voices that once you've heard echoes there every time you open his work in the most satisfying way. In his latest collection, The Tradition, Brown speaks so much of love that when I crease a corner and put the book down for the night, I feel some kind of hangover, some kind of longing, a lovesickness so great I won't sleep. We cannot wait to bask in his light and laugh here on the show. Jericho Brown, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. I I wonder if you could start us off with with a poem. I'll read the duplex. I'll read one of the duplexes. Duplex. I begin with love, hoping to end there. I don't want to leave a messy corpse. I don't want to leave a messy corpse full of medicines that turn in the sun. Some of my medicines turn in the sun. Some of us don't need hell to be good. Those who need most need hell to be good. What are the symptoms of your sickness? 
Here is one symptom of my sickness. Men who love me are men who miss me. Men who leave me are men who miss me in the dream where I am an island. In the dream where I am an island, I grow green with hope. I'd like to end there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank Um, you. I miss you, Jericho. (laughs) (laughs) You're too much. (laughs) So can we we talk about formal structure in your latest book, particularly the duplex, which people are going crazy for in the poetry world? So the duplex is your own invention. It combines sonnet, huzzle, and the blues. And I just love the idea of cribbing from old poetic traditions which subvert but also renew can you just tell us about your intentions there yeah so i just had this idea you know there's this there's all these ideas about the sonnet that you have if you're a poet you feel you you feel sort of uh, an allegiance to it and a dedication to it but you also feel trapped by it there's a way that in the world even people who do not read poetry know the word sonnet and for so many people the word sonnet equals poetry right it's it's the only form the only name of a form that so many people outside of poets or outside of poetry readers seem to know Mm -hmm. um and yet while it is a known thing it also turns out to be a little bit of a scary thing in that it becomes this way that poets of the English language make their mark and begin to understand their accomplishment and their achievement. It's also a way that we think about structure in all of our poems, particularly our short poems, whether they're sonnets or not, right? Because of the way that the sonnet sets its structure up for us. So I was thinking about that and thinking about how when you write a sonnet, you've supposedly done this great thing in the English language for poetry in the English language. And how that in and of itself is an accomplishment. And I was really upset by that, by my desire. I was sort of, oh, I'd like to write a sonnet. I actually wanted to write a a crown of sonnets, but I was also upset by my desire. Um, It felt like a certain kind of capitulation to an imperialism. You know, imperialism Mm -hmm. and capitalism empire seems to attack us on every front. And so here it it comes at us even in, in poetry, right? You know, the sonnet is an Elizabethan sonnet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right, right, so, right. So one of the things that I was thinking about is how do I avoid writing this? How do I deal with the fact that I want to write a sonnet crown, but I'm also upset about my desire to write a sonnet crown? And one of the ways that I was thinking I could do that was to gut the sonnet crown. I, I kept thinking, why do I have to go that entire distance in order to get to the repeated line? And instead, I could just write all the repeated lines. And I realized if I were to do that, what I would have is a huzzle. So when I tried to put that in practice, when I tried to make these um, gutted sonnets that were like huzzles, they weren't working. And what I needed to make them work was the blues aesthetic. I needed something in that repeated line that I was making use of that didn't just repurpose the line, but that changed it tonally, that would change the line tonally in a way that the blues line, you know, that that line from A to A prime to B, that A prime line is always tonally so different and strange and voiced and full of personality. And so I was doing that kind of work when I was trying to make this new form. And I was also thinking about identity and subjectivity and 
mm-hmm. how I'm often called to the mat about my own identity. Uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm 67% black and 2% Southern and 15% queer. Like I, I feel like I'm whole, everything that I am, you know? Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to make a form that was whole, everything it was, and a form that was indeed a sonnet as well as completely a huzzle, as well as completely a blues poem. And I felt like that sort of represented this feeling that I have in the United States. And maybe it represents a a feeling that many of us have. We're so various in our beings and we're so aware of how various we are in our beings, probably more now than ever before. And yet we keep getting fed this narrative about what's normal, when actually what's normal is multiplicity. So that's part of how I came about thinking about the duplex and making it happen and the reason why I wanted to make it happen. It's so good. It's so good. I appreciate that. I I also think about that kind of subverting too when when I read a poem like The Trees and simultaneously have an understanding of who you are and, and, and my preconceived notions, you know, being an English major and having read the canon of old white men writing about nature. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking about Manly Hopkins kind of tradition of old white men writing about nature and then you know reading your observations of crate myrtles that marries family and and the political. I don't before I ask the question, maybe can you just read the trees? Yeah, I'll read it. It's on page 19. You tell people the page number and maybe they'll get the book so that they can see it for themselves. Right. It's true. It really is on page 19. Listeners, <laughs> uh, <laughs> page 19. Yeah. Here we go. The trees. In my front yard live three crepe myrtles. Crying trees, we once called them. Not the shadiest, but soothing during a break from work in the heat. Their cool sweat falling into us. I don't want to make more of it. I'd like to let these spindly things be, since my gift for transformation here proves useless now that I know everyone moves the same, whether moving in tears or moving to punch my face. A crepe myrtle is a crepe myrtle. Three is a family. It is winter. They are bare. It is not that I love them every day. It's that I love them anyway. Oh, so good. You have roots in the rural South in Louisiana. You're in Atlanta now. I'd love to hear what it's like to be an African-American man operating in that urban setting, making, you know, this sort of the natural world, this wilderness available to all of your readers, which... I see as distributing, you know, the privilege to look deeply at nature. How conscious was that reclaiming? Oh, it was all I was really thinking about in the beginning. I mean, originally, I I didn't want to write a book about anything but flowers. I was Mm. trying to write this book that really got at the fact of the beauty that my parents felt when they would drive home and drive into their driveway. And I would see this look on their faces. And I remember my dad driving into his own driveway at his house, looking at the yard that he himself had worked on, Mm -hmm. um, had worked so hard on. And I remember him saying, oh, that's pretty. You Mm -hmm. know, there's all this talk about beauty for beauty's sake, 
But I know that part of, I know, and now I know it even better now that the book is done. I know that part of the reason why this book was so important to me and the reason why I had to get it done and the reason why it didn't end up only being a book about flowers and trees and rabbits is because you can't separate that feeling, that beauty, from the fact that the reason why I was so taken by it is it's something that I know other people wouldn't think about my father. And what I mean by that is when I first moved into the house, I was very surprised, my own home. I was very surprised by how I was turning into my dad, like <laughs> how having, I was really bothered by this actually. It's like, so when I was a kid, I was like, what's the big deal? Like, so what if the hedges are too high? Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. But you know, when you have something and you're sort of contributing to the community, to the neighborhood and, and it's yours, you want to make it beautiful. I wanted to write a book that honored that. And I remember when I was working on the flower bed, when I first moved in, one of my neighbors, she walked up past me toward the door. I was working on the flower bed that's just in front of the porch in front of my house. Mm-hmm. I said, hi. You know, uh, she had already walked past me. She was at the door and she rung the doorbell. And I said, um, hi. And she said, hey, I was just trying to see if the the woman or the man of the house was here. And I said, hey, yeah, he's here. <laughs> and I... <laughs> And, uh, and, you know, she had this look of embarrassment on her face. And then, of course, I did that thing that Black people do where they try to, you know, make everything okay and Ugh. save her. Yeah. But it was, in that moment, I realized that she could envision me working in the yard, but she couldn't envision that it was my yard and I was working mm. in it for mm. me. Right. Do you know what I mean? Because she couldn't imagine that story from the person she was seeing. And so then that's when the book started mm. to become more of what I had to face, right? Which mm-hmm. was, why am I obsessed with these flowers? It's not just because of the flowers, but it's because I inherited them from a people, from an ancestry of people who cared about them in spite of the fact that their nation didn't care about them as much as they cared about their nation or how their nation looked or how they could take care of their nation or the beauty in their nation. And so I, I was sort of trying to make a book that was doing that. So yeah, I think I think in that way, just like I'm a descendant of so many Black poets and so many Black people, I'm also a descendant of the agrarian poets and the fugitive poets of the South, you right. know? yeah. It's a very pastoral book. It's yeah. definitely a, a book about the natural world. Um, but it's a book that, it's important to me that, I mean, the book, it's important to the book, I guess I can say, that we understand the natural world is not separate from any other world. This next question kind of, I think, gets at that a little bit, too, is this question of responsibility. And I hope it's not cheating to ask ask the same question that you asked former Poet Laureate Tracy K. Smith in one of your micro interviews with her for The Believer, where you're the poetry editor. And I, I, the question was about uh, this word responsibility. I know you asked her, but I still wanted to know your response. The same question. You wear so many hats as a public poet the director of creative writing at Emory and poetry editor, you're making decisions for all kinds of things. So do you resist the word responsibility as a, in these roles when you sit down to the page? No, but I also don't think there's anything wrong with me. So I don't have (laughs) to resist the word. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I think when people are resisting the word responsibility is because 
there, I mean, I think your responsibility as an artist has to be to yourself first, mm-hmm. but I also think that works out if you're not evil. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> so if your responsibility to, is to yourself first and you wish to do harm, or if you're a misogynist, mm-hmm. or if you're somehow interested in enslaving people, or if you're somehow interested in doing something for the sake of only being looked at as opposed to thinking that that something could somehow uh, have greater repercussions on the planet Earth, then yeah, you don't want to. You don't need to be out here making yourself the first responsibility. But I don't have those problems, so <laughs> so I mean I don't. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not afraid of the word responsibility. It doesn't. It doesn't scare me. It doesn't make me feel like. Uh, I'm going to disappear or that something wrong is going to happen. Uh, As a matter of fact, it puts me in a position where I have to better face myself and I have to be true to what I really believe in my poems. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to face the fact that sometimes language takes me toward ideas that I did not know I had. That language itself can take me toward ideas that put me in a position where I have to question what I thought I believed, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what poetry should be doing. So that's my first responsibility. My first responsibility is that I write poems that have an allegiance to language that leads to new thinking for myself. And what I believe is that if I have new thinking for myself, if I create through a poem a new lens through which I see, uh, if I can do that for myself in my poems, then that will happen for a reader. But my responsibility is not to the reader. That's just what I trust. What I trust is that that will happen for the reader. The only person I can think about when I'm making a poem, the only person I can think about saving uh, in that moment is me. Mm-hmm. If other people get saved, then hallelujah. <laughs> but I'm the one in dire straits when I make a poem. When I make a poem, I'm in the dark and I'm trying to get to the light. Yeah. Uh, and I understand going to the light that I'm going to lose, <laughs> that I'm not going to be the same as I was when I first began writing the poem. Do you know what I mean, Kate? Yeah. yeah I so, I, like, So for me... You know, I think having responsibility is a part of life. I, you know, I think people get upset with responsibility because they tie it to a word like obligation. Yeah, and I don't, yeah. I don't tie that word to, to obligation. I tie it to the fact that I have to be good to myself. And I, if I'm not good to myself, I'm not going to be good to anybody else. If I can't be kind to me, if I can't see my humanity, if I can't be tender with myself, I'm not going to be tender with anybody else. Not truly. No. Not without regret, not without resentment. I won't. Do you mm-hmm. see what I mean? Yeah. So for me, yeah, I feel I feel a huge responsibility when I'm making these poems because I got to get it just right. Yes, I feel a huge responsibility in all of those other roles because, you know, those roles allow me the opportunity to give in a much more open and full way. I know how important it is to me that I be able to make my work. So part of the reason why I do those things is... I put myself in a position where it becomes easier for other people to make their work. And that's, I mean, that's my contribution to the community, but it's ultimately selfish, right? Like <laughs> I'm a poetry editor for the believer because I believe in good karma. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, like I know what it's like to be a person who's trying to get their work in the world. And so I want to be a conduit for people who are trying to get their work in the world. Hell yeah. Um, I feel the same way about being the director of creative writing at Emory. Mm-hmm. I want to build a program here with my colleagues. You know, I have the best colleagues in the world. We're the best writers in the whole wide world right here (laughs) at Emory University. 
T. Cooper, Hank Klibanoff, Joseph Skybell, Tiari Jones, Tiffany Yannick, Robin Schiff, Heather Crystal, and me. That's no amazing. greater writers anywhere in the world doing what we do for undergraduate education and creative writing. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. Um, how so, did we get I mean, I know. How do we, we get there? Let's go. Do y'all need a podcast? Yeah. I mean, y'all are welcome to stop by. Come to the class. You know what I'm saying? Like, so, so that's what I'm, I'm interested in collaboration. I'm interested in working with people who see, who see a, a a purpose for what they're doing. If you see a purpose for what you're doing, yeah, you're going to feel responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's Um, not a burden. Yeah. But I don't think my responsibility is to tell people how to feel or who to be. I Mm -hmm. think my responsibility is to tell the truth. And, you know, if you hear me tell the truth and that leads you to wanting to feel or be something else, that's going to be your business. But no, (laughs) you know, I, I think particularly for black writers, for writers of color, maybe queer writers, maybe women writers, but obviously, particularly for, I think, for Black writers in this country, uh, the word responsibility has a lot of weight to it, and and people can feel very polarized by it. Sure. Because, you know, if you are a writer, what you really need to be when you're writing is free. Mm. Something about the word responsibility that seems to take the freedom away, as if when a Black writer writes, he or she must be writing for, on the behalf of, or in order to represent his people, her people. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. No pen can um, hold yeah, all that up. Yeah, that's too much. Yeah, and I'm. It's not my job now. <laughs> yeah. Could that happen? Yes. Sure. Is that my job? No. Right. Um, and I can't think about that when I'm making my poems. Right. Then again, let me be honest about this and say I am a black man in America. Um, I would like to believe, you know, when I meet Black people who don't feel this way, I get nervous. But I do think that there's sort of a natural feeling that I have for Black people in this country because we have experiences in common mm-hmm. in this nation. Mm-hmm. So, I can write for every Asian person in Oregon. <laughs> right. <laughs> in Portland, Oregon in particular. Yeah. Portland, Oregon. Uh, or you can actually write for every Asian person where there's been an AWP. Uh, yeah. Yes. Let's go back to that. But I wouldn't go beyond that. I wouldn't go beyond that. Speaking of AWP, we here at Effing Shakespeare are nerds and we're combing the AWP archives because you uh, gave a great talk on uh, lesser known poets on a panel and spoke so lovingly about Bob Kaufman. Yeah, he's um, great. Yeah. Yeah. Your talk was such a, a delicious love letter to him. And Kaufman dedicated himself to the sort of antithesis of a literary career. And as a consequence, we don't, he's not taught as much. People don't know him as well as others. He's not considered part of the quote unquote canon. Mm -hmm. There's two questions here. One about your identity as a major poet. And I think (laughs) not minor at all, but how that sort of affects your, your meaning making as you sit down to write. With Bob Kaufman floating around in your head. But then, yeah. you know, the other question is is what we lose when we publish as much as we are today. I heard this horrifying statistic that like 10 years ago, we published 3,000 books every month in the U.S. And in 2019, it's eight. I'm sorry, every day, 3,000 books. That's including all the self-published stuff that comes out as well that you can buy on Amazon uh-huh, and whatever. Uh-huh. And now it's up to 8,000 a day. What do we lose 
who is consigned to the cracks when we are publishing this much and and no one can possibly read that much. Yeah. And I don't know if this is a question that's answerable. It's just one of the ones that that keeps me up all night. And mm-hmm. your talk on Bob Kaufman sort of like put that into sharper focus for me. We need mm-hmm. people who champion these lesser knowns, but also maybe there should be less shit out there for us to consume. I don't and then who gets to be the yeah. gatekeepers? I don't know what the answer is. Do you have thoughts? Yeah, Jericho, I can you uh, save us? Can I save you? Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's yeah, I can, I can save you. That's hilarious. Um, <laughs> you know, Bob Kaufman wrote in a prose poem. And I'm not recalling the title of it right now. I think it's like the reason I, I can't recall the title is because I'm so bad with number and the title has numbers in it. The title, I think, is something like October 5th, 1963. Mm-hmm. But I remember the lines very well. The lines are, the sentences, I should say, are, one thing is certain, I am not white. Thank God for that. It makes everything else bearable. And I think that is pretty good, right? Like it's pretty wild and crazy, mm-hmm. but it's also, I think, the kind of thing that a lot of poets are saying now and not feeling that saying would necessarily have to marginalize them in any way, right? Like there might be an audience that is wider and and includes white people for that kind of a thing. Whereas when Bob Kaufman was alive, that audience was not there in the same way. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. So, so that's first, just for the question you asked me about you know, my majorness or my minorness. I just, I try to tell the truth and I try to say what I feel. And often, and often what I, what I feel or what I see, what I, you know, what I know, try to get across a knowing. Often what I know, I find ways of saying that for whatever reason, haven't offended people enough for them to get rid of me. But you know, I'm looking forward to it. I really like it when the Bribar people start paying attention and the and the trolls (laughs) on Twitter start bothering me and you know my dean will get an email sometime sometimes that I am uh, a danger to our students here at Emory I like it when that happens because it makes me feel like I must be doing the right thing right right and I don't think that happens to me enough I mean I'm not patting myself on the back about that I actually don't think that that happens to me enough I mean if I was really doing what I was supposed to be doing I would be much more outcast probably in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but then again, you wouldn't get to know that I was doing what I was doing. Right. If right. I was that's the, the yeah, that's so the crux. Yeah. So it is like a weird paradox, I guess, in that regard. But I also, you know, I don't ever think that there can be too much poetry, I have to say. As a matter of fact, I think we need more poetry in the world. We need as much poetry as possible that is that is at the height of itself, right? We need more people working with integrity to make really good work mm-hmm. that they can only make. You know, my poems are my poems because only I can make them. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's almost un- unfathomable to think about the fact that there was literature before Toni Morrison wrote Beloved. Mm-hmm. It did exist, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. And yet when Toni Morrison wrote Beloved, all of it changed. It was all completely altered. So what I have to believe as an artist in the world is that every time I make a poem and that every time anybody makes a poem, 
particularly every time somebody makes a poem with integrity, when they really make a work of art, then they've altered all of the poems before and they've altered all of the poems after. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? So whether or not a person has read Beloved, that doesn't mean that history isn't altered by Beloved. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying? Right, right. I don't have to believe in Jesus Christ to understand the power of American Christianity you know what I'm saying? Yeah, or the dangers of it either. Mm-hmm. Do you right. follow what absolutely. I mean? Yeah. And so I don't think that there's too much poetry. I do think that you're right that you won't be able to read it all, but somebody will read what they need to see. Mm-hmm. If it's all out there, then there's more of an opportunity for people to get what they need. So you might not ever read a Jericho Brown poem, but maybe what you need is a Bob Kaufman poem, and that might come your way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but both have to exist in order for you to have the opportunity to get all the poetry that you possibly can get. So, you know, I think uh, all of the criminal activity going on uh, in this nation right now, the fact of there being too much poetry is not one of the criminal activities. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I would actually, I mean, if we really just want to look at who the criminals are, I'd I'd like us to, you know, review um, the Supreme Court justices. I'd really not like us to review the poets right now. Do you know what I'm saying? Thank you for that perspective. Um, Yeah. So, so that's, you know, that's, that's what I think. I have a lot to say about this actually, actually. So I don't want to talk too much, but I, I met Arnold Ramper said maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, something like that. And I was talking to him about Langston Hughes and, you know, I'm a big Langston Hughes Mm -hmm. fan and I was so happy to meet him. He had written those biographies and had written so much about Hughes. And so we were having, we were both having a Hughes head talk, you know, because we were all, we were both big Langston Hughes heads, right? (laughs) Right. Big fans. I said this thing about Langston Hughes being famous and how that was so amazing for him to manage that and for him to live off of, you know, he, he didn't work at a university. He lived off of his work. He lived off of his writing and off of engagements, reading his writing, you know? Right. And um, Which is like a fucking unicorn. Yeah. And Arnold Rampers had looked at me like I was a little crazy. And he said to me, Jericho, you do realize that everybody who's famous is famous on purpose. Um. Nobody gets famous just because they're good at doing a thing. They put themselves in a position in order to get famous. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> he started talking to me about Langston Hughes and how Langston Hughes really did engineer his reputation and engineer his prominence in the world, you know? And so I have a little, and I, also, I often think poets have a little bit too much shame about fighting for their work. And I think there's nothing there's nothing wrong with us making sure that people understand that our poems are on the planet earth mm-hmm. and i actually encourage my students you know my students part of what they're doing when they reach out when you make a poem you're reaching out and you know i encourage my students well if you're reaching out reach all the way out and people need to know that you made this mm-hmm. work mm-hmm. you know you owe it to the work you owe it to the gift that you received this tour that I'm on right now has been has gotten to the point. I love it. I love doing it. But it is hard. It's grueling. It's a one-year tour because uh, I still believe you give a book of poetry a year before you let it go, mm-hmm. which is the advice I got. You know, 
when I was when I was a young person who didn't have a book. And that's what all the poets always told me. You push it for a year. So I'm pushing this for a year. And so I'm giving a bunch of readings because I believe that these poems came to me in no other way that any poems had ever come to me before. And I want to honor that. And I want to give them whatever wings they need, whatever, whatever wings they need to fly, whatever shoes they need to walk. It's my responsibility. You know, when you're making poems, you're giving birth. And then after you give birth, you know, what do you do with a kid? <laughs> you know, you, But yeah, that's the only way your book... Go, rises to the surface yeah, of those 8,000 you that gotta, are published I mean, every you know, day. You know, if you read, the truth is, uh, in the United States, the better mark of a parent is how many lessons they give a kid. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, did he take tap? Did he take piano? Um, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. what can you, can you get him in soccer? Like, do you follow what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to get my kids in soccer. <laughs> Do you follow what I'm saying? And then ultimately, yes, I will let them go. Yeah, yeah. I will, and I will move on to something else that I have to usher into the world. And so I, so I have, you know, I have this this feeling um, about that, about fighting for your work, mm. and about fighting for other people's work, and about poets taking care of one another, and about poets being cheerleaders um, for one another, and not being ashamed of what we do. I have a lot of feeling about that and I want to be open about it. And I don't want to be shameful about the fact of that feeling. I think we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of trouble actually in our community as it relates to that. And I want that trouble gone away. So, I mean, to answer your question, you know, if you choose, you get to choose who you want to be in this world. And if you want to be a poet who is trying to get people to read your work, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not your job. Right, 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 right. Your job is to make poems. People don't understand that, right? Like, I'm not a poet because I have poems. I'm a poet because I write them. <laughs> the, only t- the only time I'm being a poet is when I'm writing poems. Other than that, I'm not being a poet. I'm sort of doing some extra poet work. Do you know what I'm saying? It's extra so, um, Yeah, so, it's, you know, it, it's a line and you have to, you really do have to walk the line and pay attention to the line. Because you don't want to be out here doing stuff for selfish reasons. Right. You know, you want you want the work to be a part of something greater than the work, right? Mm-hmm. We're writing because we want to contribute. And all we, the reason you're a writer, the reason anybody's a writer is because they read a lot. And in all of the reading, there's something missing. They love all of this literature, and yet they feel something is missing. And that's what they're trying to make. They're trying to make that poem where, oh, I've never seen a poem that does this, or I've never seen a story that does that, or why don't we have a novel in which the following happens? And that's why we're writers. Do you understand what I mean? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, One of the things we do on the show is talk a lot about things that that don't get taught at MFA programs. And I think trying to demystify this whole publishing process. So I'd love to hear your story if you don't mind sharing how you found your way to Copper Canyon and also about Copper Canyon's sort of expectations for this, your third book and, and your particular place right now. I sent Copper Canyon, they had an open reading period and I sent them the manuscript for my second book during that open reading period. 
I don't remember when the period was, but he called me to let me know that they were accepting. Uh, my editor called me, Michael Wiegers, who's wonderful, mm. called me to let me know that they were accepting it, accepting the book in January. It must have been of, when did the book come out? 14, 2014, I think. Or did it come out on 15? Uh, 14, I think it came I out think. in 14. Yeah. And, and they, so they must have accepted it in 13, I imagine. And then the book came out and it was really a great experience working with them on the second book. I had a lot of, they're really a supportive clan of folk over there. The publicist at the time was a woman named Kelly Forsyth. I had never had a publicist before, but she worked really hard on the book. She got it featured on PBS, on NPR, all kinds of reviews. I was very pleased. We have a new publicist now named Cherry, who is the most amazing of all publicists of all time, who's been so helpful to me. I mean, this, I mean, it's, it actually become, I mean, here I am doing the shame thing because it's actually hard to talk about all of the, the list that the book has been on the second, this third book, the tradition, all the reviews, including a New York times review, which was a big deal to me. Hey, hey, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was happy to see that, but also I was feeling that thing that I feel, you know, it's like I was saying, it's a line you have to walk. You know, as soon as I'm happy to see the New York Times review, I'm sort of questioning my happiness about seeing the New York Times review. <laughs> yes. uh, and part, you know, and I think that's healthy because part of that has to do with the fact that I actually don't believe in this system that I participate in. I have to participate in the system because I want to eat. You want um, people to read and your yet book. I don't. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in certain kinds of hierarchies that we believe. And, you know, I don't believe in it, Kate. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and yet I participate in it. Or maybe I believe in it, but I wish I didn't. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, there is something yeah, yeah. going on. There is something going on there. You know, I remember when people would come to me with criticisms of Barack Obama, I would always say, they were like, you know, they would say all these good things about him. Then they would say, yeah, but I don't understand why he blank, you know, some criticism. And I'd say, well, maybe it's because he's president of the United States. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can be president, I don't know, of many things and maybe get away with being good all the time. But you're not going to be president of the United States without being awful because it's what? The United States. And it has a history <laughs> of awful. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not. So so for me, I just have to be sort of you asked me about publishing and I, I know I went to the left. <laughs> but I have to be I have to be honest and I have to be careful and I just have to measure myself when I'm thinking about institutions and nation and capitalism just because you know that stuff ain't ever been of use to folk who look like me right. um, it definitely was not helpful to my ancestors in any way what did it bring them Christianity oh well a lot of good that's done them. do you know what I'm saying <laughs> so I so I have all kinds of questions about that and and how and how that works in the world. But at any rate, to answer your question, yeah, I sent I sent Copper Canyon the, the second book, The New Testament. They published that book and it got what seems to me to have been a lot of attention. I was very pleased with the reception, very grateful. And then I finished this book and I sent this book to Michael and I actually sent him some poems. You know, this book came about, the publishing of this book was sort of weird because it I had about half of the book done, but I knew I was far away from a book. And Michael kept asking me if I was going to have anything ready that could come out in 2019. He asked me in September. He asked me October. He asked me in November. And in November, I sort of told him, you have to leave me alone. (laughs) Go away. I'm working. Yeah, because he was making me nervous, you know, Uh because I was already feeling bad. You know, I'm a a slow writer. And so I was already feeling bad about how 
a long, you know, you know, it gets to where you feel bad about how long it, even though you feel like you sort of feel vindicated by it when it, when it turns out, but while it's happening, you're like, do I still write poems that actually, that I actually finished? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Is um, my name still Jericho Brown? Yeah. So then I started writing. Half of this book came to me between Thanksgiving and Martin Luther King Day, to oh be quite gosh. honest with you. Oh my and gosh. by, yeah, so I called and I realized I had enough pages and I was like, oh my God, I will have something for 2019. So in very early 2018, I sent Michael some poems and I said, hey, I think I might have something after all if there's still a space for me in 19. And he was like, well, I'm not really sure, but yeah, I'll read these pages. And he called me and he said, Jericho, these poems are so amazing. Like he was like, what are, what's going on? Like he's like, what are you doing? What are you drinking? So I was I was really pleased to have the encouragement from my editor and they helped me to order the book and you know, we worked on it. I sent him the book, he made some suggestions. I didn't do any of his suggestions, but I did something else. You know, the way we work is he'll make a suggestion. Michael's really he's, you know, a lot of a lot of people don't have this. I have an editor who reads my books and gives me suggestions to make them better. And what I do is I look at the root of why I think he said something and I change everything that he points toward, but I don't necessarily change it in the way that he imagined. Mm -hmm. So we have a really good working relationship. And yeah, I found the cover, which I think, you know, I always tell people, if you don't like these poems, you don't have to buy the book because this is the best poetry book cover of all time and ever. (laughs) Um, So, you know, and I found the book really honestly by Googling the phrase black boys and flowers, because that's what I was thinking most about when I was writing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. uh, Lauren Ralphie Burgess, who was very young at the time that she did it. I mean, she might've been 22 years old when she did this painting and when she made this image. And so Copper Canyon got in touch with her and they purchased it. And, you know, I'm very pleased with the product and with its reception in the world. I can't, I couldn't have asked for more. It's a gorgeous cover. I love yeah, that. Yeah, I couldn't story. have asked. I could not ask for more. I'm really grateful for everything. I'm very proud. It's a book I'm very proud of. So yeah. does Copper Canyon protect you sort of from the numbers conversations? Are you involved in those conversations when they're putting together their projection for No, they actually don't involve me in the numbers conversation as much as I would like to be involved. Yeah, I get on their ner- I think I get on their nerves. Like right now, I don't know how many copies of the book <laughs> I've sold. And I, you know, I'm sort of afraid to ask because I get this feeling that if I ask, they sort of feel like this is really not anything you need to be concerned about. And I also kind of feel like maybe they feel like it's none of my business, you know? Do you know what I mean? In a way, it's their book. I mean, I sold it to them. Do you know? (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, I care about those kinds of things, but I think maybe they feel like I shouldn't. So I'm always. And I think it's part of. I think it's really interesting for up and coming writers to have some insight into how these things work. You know, um, yeah, but you know, sort of okay. the truth is, the truth is, I don't know how valuable that information is. I mean, what are you going to do if you only sell two copies of a book? Like, try to write a book in order to sell more co- that sells more copies? That's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, see yeah, what yeah. I'm saying? Like, yeah. you can't write toward a number. So, I mean, I don't, I mean, the difference between me and everybody else is I don't think I ever would. I mean, I shouldn't say everybody else, but I I can know numbers without writing toward a number. Mm -hmm. I just like to know what's going on. I like to know who's selling books out here. Do you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. And I like to know if I'm one of the folk doing it. I mean, you know, I'm kind of nosy, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The print run for this book was 10,000 copies, which 
we were sold out of books at Copper Canyon on the day the book came out. So they did another print run that same, like the second day after the book came Damn. out. Yeah. So we've sold, it seems that, I mean, that's you know, a lot I, of books. Not, that's a lot. But yeah. But it books. seems that we've sold, a, I mean, we sold at the AWP where I saw food last, we sold 300, I think it was either three or five, but something hundred copies. That was a lot of books to sell, you know, <laughs> yeah. in a three day period. Where, you know there's, what I'm where there's nothing but books in that building. Yeah. We sold a bunch of books and I had a big sign in line out there, man. So I, I was, yeah. I was very ple- pleased with that. And I think the book is making its rounds. I'm hoping that it's on syllabi this semester and next semester and that it remains on, that it does well enough in classes that teachers see a need to keep it on syllabi. There's there are teachers at Emory in the English department who are teaching it. So I'm really excited about the work that it's doing in the world, but I'm also, you know, because it's doing that kind of work, I have to let it, I know that it's time to let it go. I have to meet these obligations. You know, I've, I've, if I had known I was going to sell this many books, maybe I wouldn't have put myself on the road so hard, (laughs) but it's true, you know, but but I did. So I'm contracted out. Like I have to be at these places and I don't mind doing it. It's exhausting and it sort of feels weird to be pushing a book that has already sold more copies than you imagine selling. Do you know what I mean? It used to be, I mean, I'm wondering if this book really sold online or through reviews. It used to be, you really had to hit the road in order. I mean, my last two books, I wasn't really on Twitter. I mean, Twitter didn't exist really. I don't even think, or if it did barely existed Mm -hmm. when my first book came out. Do you know what I mean? Like if you wanted to sell a book of poetry, you slept on your friends' couches and gave readings in every co- coffee shop in that town. Do you yeah, understand what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, I'm contracted out. So I have to do these readings, which I'm happy to do. Even but though your I, kid's already in soccer and knows Spanish and Vietnamese. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, so it's a different, so it's a weird situation. You know yeah, what I'm saying? I think, I think maybe this kid is taking what we would call a gap year or something <laughs> like that, right? So it's a weird, it's a weird situation that I'm in. But it's also a, a situation. The only thing about it is that because I'm on the road so much, I can't turn as much as I would like to. I'm sort of working on a new thing. But, you know, as long as I'm, I've got my hands in the tradition this much, it's hard for me to turn fully toward this new thing. And I, I, I'd like to be able to get some more writing done on something else, you know? Is the new thing poetry? Another book? Um, no, not really. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. Let's see. Well, I'm writing a poem. You know, you know I get asked to write a poem. So I, when people ask me to write a poem, I will always, I will always try. Uh-huh. If I get sort of a write a poem assignment, then I will always try to write a poem. Uh-huh. Like anthologies come up and people are like, oh, can you write a poem for this? Uh-huh. Ibram Kendi. I'm a big fan of the writer, the historian, Ibram Kendi, uh-huh. nonfiction writer. And, you know, yeah. um, he's doing this anthology called 400 Souls, a Community of History of African America, oh, wow. 1619 to 2019. And so since he asked me, I'm going to try to write a poem for it. I've been oh, working on it. I hope I finish something that's decent. But, you know, that's a poem. So, yeah, I guess I'm writing a poem, writing poems since I'm writing that one. But, you know, other than that, I don't know if I don't know if it's here for me in poems anymore. I don't know how I feel about poetry. Right. I'm working on prose right now. I'm working on these essays. So we'll see what happens with that. I have essays that I've been publishing through the years. And so when I printed them all out and looked at them. I was like, oh, I have a few pages, a good few pages. So maybe there's a way to compile them and make some new essays where I say some of this stuff that I've been saying on this podcast. (laughs) I can put it down. People can read it um, as well as hear it, you know. 
if you have just five more minutes, we'll ask you some quick questions for responses, quick responses. Can you do that? Really quick yeah, responses? Yeah. yeah, of course. Okay, Kate. All right, here we go. What's the worst thing about running a creative writing department and the best thing? Uh, the worst thing about running a creative writing department is, I mean, you know, the worst thing about being a poet in the world, and I guess the worst thing about creative writing or running a creative writing department is that it's just simple translation. I mean, the hardest thing in the world about being a poet, I, for me, and maybe other people disagree, it's not like, it's not that getting writing done is hard. It's that having any kind of interaction with people who are not poets becomes difficult because you have to translate what you do. And even after you translate it, it's something always gets lost in translation. It's hard for people to understand that what I'm doing is real work. Working in a university is really hard for people to get their minds around. The fact that I'm a college professor, that I have a full-time job as well as I write books, as well as I can be on a tour <laughs> yeah. all at once. Yeah. Like, that makes people nervous. It's actually hard to date like that, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like yes. People are like, what are you doing? You tell them what you're doing. They're like, what does that mean? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Where will you be this Friday? <laughs> Right. This Friday, I'll be in New York. I'm doing the <laughs> Brooklyn Book Festival yeah. <laughs> um, and some other readings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so exactly. people don't understand. Like you were just in Atlanta. How are you in Brooklyn? <laughs> <laughs> like an airplane. So it gets, you know, it gets difficult. I just want to have coffee. Why are you not in my town? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also weird to live a life that has a lot that has this much going on, but also does not is not accompanied by a bunch of wealth. Like I have a lot going on. And I think people would understand, oh, he's got a lot going on. If I don't know if I was driving, I guess, a Bentley. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or a Tesla or something, but I'm not. So it doesn't make sense that I have a lot going on because of the way our capitalist set minds work. Do you know what I mean? So um, so it's just hard, I think, to translate. And I think the same thing happens. You know, as a director of creative writing, my job is literally to translate um, what we need for students and what we need for faculty. And even among English professors, I think uh, sometimes things get lost in translation. People don't really understand what our work is about. Mm -hmm. um, so that's difficult. Um, the best thing is my colleagues. The best thing is just seeing them. Actually, I feel honored to work with the people. I mean, it makes me emotional. Aww. I feel honored to work with the people that I work with um, at this college. I feel that way about the English professors here, but especially about the writers. They're some of the best writers in the country. And um, working th with them really does make me feel like I'm a real person in this world. You know, um, I must be okay because Tiffany Yannick is across the hall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, I, sometimes I feel a little bit of imposter syndrome i get to work with robin Schiff. she's one of my favorite poets yeah. do you know what i'm saying yeah. um before yeah. robin came here my my last two colleagues who only who left emory recently were uh, natasha trethway and kevin young um so i i just feel right like i get i've gotten to be with the best colleagues in the world and i've i work in a poetry friendly environment my school is friendly to fiction friendly to poetry friendly to the art of writing friendly to nonfiction, and that's the best thing about it Okay, so I, I'm sorry. It takes me a long time to answer. <laughs> so since the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend regularly lampoons Emory as a Harvard of the South, what's the best and what's the worst thing about being at this kind of prestige university? Well, I mean, the best thing about being at any institution that has a certain kind of name recognition is that, you know, there are the benefits of it that 
there's all the privileges that come with that. You know, I know that Emory, that the that the course load I have at Emory has to do with the fact that it's Emory. I wouldn't have that course load if I was teaching somewhere else where I used to teach, for instance, at the University of San Diego, a teaching institution that I honor with all my heart because I learned so much about how to teach there. Mm. Uh, you know, I was teaching three classes a semester. The load at Emory is two classes a semester. That's because it's Emory, right? Which gives us a better opportunity to get some of our creative work done that we wouldn't have if we were teaching a bigger load. So that's the best part. The the fact that, as I was saying, I'm I'm in a, a research-friendly and a poetry-friendly and a, a, a writing-friendly environment. The university really does want me to produce work, and they try to. And if I'm doing that, they'll try to make way for me to do more of that. You know, the other best part of being at Emory is the fact that it's in Atlanta, uh, that black mecca, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, some would say that queer black mecca. So I get to live in a city. I get to be in the South. I get to be close to home. I get to hear the idioms of my people. And, you know, I get to hang out with my folks and I really love that. Now, you know, and I wouldn't be able to do that if I landed in a university at at some, as well as I can do it here. I wouldn't be able to do that landing at a university in another place. So, you know, I have my theater, but I also have my nightclub and it's all here. (laughs) And I have, you know, and I have my zinnias, you know what I'm saying? I have, (laughs) um, you know, Atlanta's a very green city and I, you know, and I, I have, in case you hadn't noticed, I have a particular appreciation for that, being able to be in the natural world while also being in metropolitan area. So that's the best thing. And the worst thing, you know, I have to watch out. I have to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do for me. And I really do. And it's hard. It's difficult. I have to watch out for looking at anybody else. And when you're in certain kinds of environments, you can get bogged down in, oh, well, uh, this person won this award. I didn't win any award. Or or this person has six books and I only have four books. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, because I work with so much excellence, I have to make sure that I see that as an, as an advantage, right? And that I don't turn that into a point of jealousy or a point of pride. Do you follow what I'm saying? Right. So, um, so it gets really, it gets a, it, there's a line, that I've seen that I could cross over and I have to make sure I stay on the right side of that line. Well, we hope sincerely that you continue to take care of yourself and be able to do that. Cause we love you and Thank we y'all. love your work. I, no, I love you too. Me. Y'all are so sweet. Uh, Thank you. Thank, thank you, you, you so much. Thank y'all for having me on. Uh, Thank you for making time for uh, us. Can, can we exit it. with some more Whitney? Oh yeah! Can uh, you see oh, this? Oh no 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 more Whitney. But I don't even. Oh, here's the wavy line. Let's see. And I... No, okay, that was all. <laughs> the line's not even, it's not even waving anymore. <laughs> okay, bye, everybody. Okay, Thanks, bye. Jericho. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space. Hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole and produced by me, Fulu. Our trusty and hardworking intern is Natalia Pomeroy. As always, subscribe, rate, and review. And I will always love you. (laughs) You know, coming... Coming to a text and you doing different things with that, which is...
sorry. I'm going to repeat that because yeah. food threw shit across the room. I don't um, understand why he's throwing stuff at I you. I don't know. I am so nice to him all the time. I think Jericho. it's so strange. And you know, he was all sound this and sound that. And now he's throwing stuff at you. <laughs> it's embarrassing. All the time. I'm trying to turn off the sound. <laughs> okay. <laughs>